0: So when I was a lawyer, I would work. Um, I lived in Oakland, would take the train to work, get on the 7 o'clock train, 7 a.m. train to the city. I'd be at my desk at 7.45. I would work until midnight and rush to catch the last train back east into the East Bay um, to go home, sleep a few hours, and get up and do it again. And How I did often that. were you doing that? I did that every day for almost 10 years. <laughs> So the question was, when would I fit in the time Mm -hmm. to study? And so I thought, being kind of arrogant, that I wouldn't have to prepare for the GMAT. So I took the GMAT, a a practice test, and I did well on the narrative part of it, and I literally could not remember algebra.
1: This is Claim of Stories, a show about professionals working in the sportswear industry and the incredible careers they've been able to claim. Welcome to
0: the Creative State, Creative State.
1: At the table, at the table. I'm Bima, and today's show is a live recording from the 2019 African American Footwear Forum in Portland, Oregon. We talk about how Rikaya Adams went from growing up as a young Black girl in Northeast Portland to now managing billions of dollars at Meyer Memorial Trust. Rikaya began her career as an acquisitions lawyer in Silicon Valley. In fact, one of her clients was Yahoo, just a promising internet company in the early 2000s. Working with a team of lawyers, it was her job to acquire companies like Napster for Yahoo's portfolio. In our conversation that you're about to hear, Rakaya recalls how navigating these deals involved a lot of math, which she loved, and it inspired her to make a significant pivot in her career. After eight years of practicing law, she decided to pursue investment management, and it required her to go back to school and get her MBA. Even tougher was overcoming the belief that she wasn't good enough at math a narrative created by educators that showed bias against young black girls. When we spoke at the forum, she shared how she overcame these hurdles.
0: Well, it's funny. People visit Portland and they don't see a lot of African Americans here. But when I grew up, there was a whole part of town that was largely brown, black Hmm. and brown. So the cops were black. My teachers were black. Bus drivers were black. For a little black girl, it was like... It was like Narnia, right? Like, <laughs> hey. We were encouraged um, to be leaders. I went to Martin Luther King Elementary School and Harriet Tubman Middle School for a little black girl to to, you know, inter middle school right. under the sort of leadership and vision of Harriet Tubman, it was just, it was a beautiful place. That's amazing. At the time. Now, those communities have been gentrified and displaced mm-hmm. and some, to some degree, renamed, which is kind of fucked up. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> just We're just going to keep it 100%. We're keeping it 100%. Okay.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> but I will say that growing up with so many people who were intentionally loving and centering black culture mm-hmm. was amazing. You couldn't have told me that you know, I had I didn't have the same opportunities right. or that I wasn't as smart. We were encouraged to be powerful, to be assertive, um, confident. I felt oh, safe. That's... Like there was no place I, I didn't feel like I could wander. But with that said, we did stay in one part of the city. Hmm. I didn't wander the whole city. The yeah,
1: whole city. And so I know in 87, around the time when you were 13, you ended up going to Caitlin Gable, Gabriel, which is a, a private institution, private school. Caitlin Gable,
0: yeah. It, it's, it's, it's sort of like Phillips Exeter, I think, of... <laughs> The West Coast is a little less formal, but it's a private, almost all-white school. And at the time, there were seven kids of color plucked from the inner city neighborhoods Mm -hmm. to diversify the school, and the class class sizes were only 50, so seven of us came at once. Four black girls, one black boy, and then two Latino um, young men. So when we came in, we changed the culture of the school, but that culture also changed us.
1: How did, how were people in the school, like your classmates, new classmates, I guess, <laughs> how were they respond to this?
0: Well, I mean, some of it was ignorant. I mean, you can imagine some of the stuff we did. One of my big regrets, that I want to tell you a story. So our first day of school, because our parents worked, like we grew up in the hood, all mm-hmm. of us, and mm-hmm. we had gone to school together. The first day of school at this beautiful private school, our parents had to work. So we took the bus to school. <sighs> And the bus dropped us off like a block from the campus. And the first day of school, we walked up the back side of the campus into the back door of the building. And one of my big regrets was that I didn't know enough at that time to walk around to the front door of the building. Um, and that experience of entering into privilege and and privileged spaces by using the back door and not being wise enough at that age to understand the the symbolism of that—that's right. one of my big regrets. But. So there, you know, there were the typical racist crazy shit that people did, and mm-hmm. some of it affected a lot of my life. It affected yeah. career yeah. in some interesting ways. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the lessons about race in America and gender and the differences between the way that black women and, and white women navigate mm-hmm. the world, most, most black women learn that when they go to college. Mm. I learned it at 13. I when at 13. we had to integrate a new school. Yeah.
1: That's a lot for a 13-year-old.
0: Looking back on it, it it does seem like a lot, but I I will say now it's like a superpower Mm. that I can speak lots of different languages physically, not even literally, but just be able to be in spaces, carry my body differently, Mm -hmm. um, express authority in different ways. And it, it just took
1: learning. A lot of navigating. A lot
0: of navigating, yeah.
1: So... After high school, you go into undergrad, you finish undergrad, and you decide you want to go to law school. You get into Stanford Law School, yeah, and you become a lawyer, and you're working in San Francisco. Yeah. I was
0: was a deal lawyer. I tell people the movie, um, The Firm, I don't know if you've you've seen that movie. I was that lawyer, and I worked (laughs) at that law firm. (laughs) I know you guys are probably too young for that movie, but basically, you know, we were sharks. Yeah. Yeah. And my great-grandmother, I was the first person in my family to go to college and to law school, and she thought I was a civil rights lawyer, and I was like, oh, <laughs> um, uh-huh.
1: I'm doing a little different kind type of Dad. business. <laughs> yeah. So what was, I guess, like, the day-to-day like in, in that role? and in the So,
0: States, you know? so it's, for the younger people in the audience, it probably is hard for you to imagine a time before the web had taken over. But yeah. um, my early days as a young lawyer from 1999 to, say, 2005, the internet was just on fire, right? And yeah. at that time I was Yahoo's deal lawyer and mm-hmm. I went out and did hostile takeovers for Yahoo. <laughs> so the early applications of music on the web, so Napster mm-hmm. and Launch Media and Hot Jobs, those were all hostile takeovers. And I was okay. the lawyer on the legal team that was back there Basically saying we want to buy you, and when they said no, we were like, we're going to buy you, and they said no. Like, I wasn't fucking playing. We're going to buy (laughs) you. I'm
1: coming here.
0: (laughs) Right. Don't make me pull my hair back in a ponytail. But um, so day to day, it wasn't that dramatic. I mean, a lot of the negotiation happened in contract and Mm -hmm. um, based on statutory rules with um, the SEC. But Mm -hmm. but it was in essence a lot of aggressive technology plays. And it's funny, some of the deals that I pursued as a young lawyer, if they had actually happened, would have Mm -hmm. transformed society. So years ago, Yahoo wanted to buy PayPal. And for a year, we stocked PayPal and tried to make that happen. And we ended up falling out of the the hunt for PayPal. And if Yahoo had acquired PayPal and Mm -hmm. had a transaction business and hadn't made the veer into media away from search you know google might be not different. have risen. right yeah so it, it's an interesting thing to look back on but there was a lot of negotiating uh, those deals have a lot of math mm-hmm. um, involved in them and that was what lit the flame for me to make make a change
1: okay so you did you made a change right and so a lot of times when people think about their careers uh-huh. it's rare that people pivot into a completely different yeah. space and you went into a space where you had to go and get an mba yeah so you went back to stanford
0: I did, yeah, I didn't expect to go back to Stanford. Um, in the end, it was the best law, uh, best business school that I got into, and it yeah. felt like the right fit. And interesting enough, business school was a much better fit for my temperament than mm. law school. So the other part about being a lawyer that was off, in addition to loving the math, I'm temperamentally a bossy middle-aged lady. <laughs> <laughs> and lawyers are, by definition, advisory. So you, you, okay. you tell your clients what you recommend, and, mm-hmm. and then somebody else makes the decision and I was uncomfortable in that role I felt constrained yeah and so um I also felt looking back on my 13 year old self this you know precocious assertive young black girl going into a largely white environment Mm. the 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 most wounding experience about that school um, transition was that math teachers talked down to me what do you mean so we tested into the school, and we took all these tests to make sure that we had the aptitude to handle this, the load, the academic load, which is mm-hmm. funny. These teachers thought we couldn't handle the load, but the academic part of the transition was actually the easiest. The social part was the toughest. Gotcha. But um, I tested to, into, like, let's say, junior-level mm-hmm. math, and the math teachers basically thought it was a mistake. And they were like, well, maybe you should go back to algebra. I'm sure your public school training isn't good enough. So wow. I actually internalized a lot of that um, the sort of head dunking head, yeah, that yeah. happens to, I think, girls and yeah. black people. And I took calculus through high school, but has so deeply internalized the rejection that when I went to college, I didn't pursue a STEM-based college um, oh, oh. degree. I took a little bit of math, but mm-hmm. not as much as I, I should have. Mm-hmm. And then when I ended up in the practice, one of the reasons why I was able to do well is that behind all of those transactions are, are is a series of complex calculations. Mm-hmm. And to the degree that the lawyers could cross over mm-hmm. into the math, and they were really powerful in negotiating. So I could, I could see mathematically what the real levers are, right. were in, in, in deals. Anyway, so I was in the lawyer's role, and I went to law school because I felt like i could not pursue a stem based job so okay. it took me 20 years from hearing those kinds of insults for the first time or mm-hmm. or not even insults but it's like
1: redirection really redirection
0: yeah at 13 yeah. it took me 20 years from there to get my get my group In, back group. And, and
1: did you what was it like you had to how did you work to break down that that systematic information that was ingrained in you that basically programmed you to say I'm not good at math I shouldn't pursue right. a career in this
0: well some of it was that it was demonstrated that I was good at math right yeah. and some of it is is age having okay. a bit more maturity and having the financial success to tell people to go fuck themselves right and I didn't have that <laughs> as a young lawyer um, and and then also over time, people with STEM-based skills became more important in our economy. Mm -hmm. As a Gen Xer, when I was a young person, it wasn't STEM-based people who were the power brokers, right? Mm -hmm. It was the lawyers, the sort of... In the 80s and early 90s, where our society worshipped money, it was the people who sort of made deals Mm -hmm. happen Mm -hmm. that seemed powerful. But during the intervening times of my young adulthood, the move... We went from deal-type dudes, Mm -hmm. right, to stem-based power oh. and i just decided that I, I thought i could do that
1: when we come back in just a minute how kaya went from working as an acquisitions lawyer to managing billions of dollars with meyer memorial trust stay with us i'm bima and you're listening to claim of stories hey everyone support for claim stories comes from portland state university's center for retail leadership if you want to prepare for a successful career, they can help by creating hands on learning experiences focused on innovation, collaboration, and thought leadership. Visit pdx.edu backslash retail leadership. Hey, welcome back to Claim of Stories. I'm speaking with Rakaya Adams about the motivations that nudged her to leave her career as a lawyer to pursue investment management.
0: I want to be clear. A lot of people tell these stories and they make it seem so smooth (laughs) and so easy. So when I was a lawyer, I would work, um, I lived in Oakland, would take the train to work, get on the 7 o'clock train, 7 a.m. train to the city, I'd be at my desk at 7.45, I would work until midnight and rush to catch the last train back east into the East Bay um, to go home, sleep a few hours and get up and do it again. How often were you doing that? I did that every day for almost 10 years. So the question was, when would I fit in the time to study? And so I thought, being kind of arrogant, that I wouldn't have to prepare for the GMAT. So I took the GMAT, a a practice test, and I did well on the narrative part of it, and I literally could not remember algebra. Uh, So I, I didn't do well on the practice test, and the guy that I was dating at the time, who is now my husband, um, <laughs> he <made it. laughs> yeah.
1: he, um know he he's past this. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, this is, what, this is where I, I knew I loved him. Um, he basically said, if you're going to make a move, you have to do it now. I was mm-hmm. eight years into the practice, mm-hmm. and after that, you get so deep mm-hmm. into the partnership pipeline that you really can't make a pivot. And for the next six months, maybe a year, every night after work, we'd come home at 10 o'clock, he would tutor me Mm in math from I'm choking up a little here thinking about this but from 10pm to 11pm he tutored me so we got through stats (laughs) and algebra and back to calculus and once I sort of picked it up it was fast. So for a year he taught me that so he'd leave me at 11 and I'd study until midnight or Mm 1 and then go to sleep and go back to work as a lawyer and then come home at (laughs) night and study math. And then for a year I went to Um, community college in San Francisco at night after working to study math. So once I got to Calc, I needed to go a little bit further to Mm -hmm. make sure I had the skills to do the work. And then at the end of that year, I took the GMAT and nailed it.
1: Right? So that's a lot of determination because yeah. you're yeah. you have your regular day job,
0: regular day job, you're an in a inten- an intense day <laughs> job, intense job, right? day job. Yeah. really
1: intense day job. Yeah. You have you're in a relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was an M and A lawyer too, <laughs> so it was all of it our friends. Of yeah, everybody was intense.
1: Where does that determination come from?
0: Well, there are other details about why I made the move. So, in addition to not being temperamentally suited to be a lawyer. Um, I felt like I was picking cotton, albeit mm. at a much higher hourly mm. rate, because I was doing all this really technical work. And by the time I delivered a recommendation to the executives, they were the ones making the making money. money. I, was, I was like grinding, right? right. For a few nickels, uh, working 15 hours a day. And I just felt like my people did not struggle
1: for, you.
0: for me <laughs> to be. To, to, to basically be owned and making other people rich, right? right? And, and that's a form of indentured hmm. labor that mm-hmm. just wasn't working. And so I needed to make the pivot from being the person making recommendations that mm-hmm. drove wealth to the person who controlled capital.
1: And, and that, was,
0: that was the... That was the switch. That was the drive. That was the right?
1: drive. Okay. And so then how did you get to New York? Is this what led you to New York to start?
0: Nope. So nope. I'm also not going to tell a fake story. So I graduate from okay. business school. I do well in business school. Okay. Um... And uh, after business school, I graduated. I did not have a job. Mm. Like, I thought that after being a valley lawyer, a successful valley lawyer, that I would be able to switch sides of the table Mm -hmm. and go into one of the private equity shops that I had been working for for the last decade. I mean, they knew me. They knew my capabilities. (laughs) And now I have the credential. Well, I couldn't get a job.
1: Really? Yeah. How long did that go on?
0: That went for a few months. And I will also say that um, most of the black women that I graduated from Stanford Business School with, I don't think most of us had jobs when we graduated, and Mm -hmm. there were some dudes who were dumb as two pennies (laughs) rubbed together who got great jobs, and I was like, what the, this is some bullshit. Uh, And I was so worried that I'd made the wrong choice in making the pivot, and I had a classmate who had worked for a hedge fund that needed somebody who could both negotiate deals and build the models Mm -hmm. and do the math in the background, and I just happened to be the unicorn they were looking for, and so I was like, Harlem, here I come, and and moved to Harlem. You moved to Harlem. And I moved to Harlem. Did yeah. you know anyone there? Nope, uh, I did not. Lived on 130th and Sixth, uh, and I'm a runner, so I would run yeah. down Sixth uh, Avenue, which is Lenox. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if there are any New Yorkers in the room, but I run down Sixth Avenue, to, down <laughs> which, all right, down to Battery Park and back when I was training for um, marathons, and that's only 12 miles, yeah, well, so maybe yeah. 12 and a half, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, As a Portlander, I just laced them up and Mm -hmm. I ran the island. And from time to time in New York, I would take the train north to, like, the cloisters and then Mm -hmm. run down back into Harlem. But anyway, so I moved to Harlem, run a hedge fund, Yes, we sell it, um, and I decided to take a sabbatical. I had a non-compete.
1: Yes. Yeah, you know a little (laughs) bit about that.
0: Um, And I came back here expecting a visit for six months. I didn't want to be in New York for the winter. Mm. And I came back, and I went for a run in Forest Park, and I was like... Gotta come back. I, I missed home. Wow. Yeah, I'm a, so, and I'm a fourth generation black Portlander. Yeah, you had to come home. I had to come home. Did you know what you were gonna do? No, I wanted to make sure that I could continue investing, um, but I was worried that I wouldn't be able to do that here, that I would be destroying my career. But the other thing about coming back to town is that when I showed up in a room, especially for, my community, mm-hmm. the tone of the conversation changed.
1: How mm-hmm. so? Awesome.
0: Well, I mean, I tell you, years, of year, years and years of being a deal lawyer, it just, there <laughs> is a kind of like Darth Vader energy you can bring yeah. Uh, yeah. to people I and mean, like, <laughs> don't even fucking think about it. But, yeah. um, my mom lives in a neighborhood that was gentrifying and people were fighting about parking and there was a big, just big, a lot, a lot of conflict between mm-hmm. young white um, folks who moved into the neighborhood and, and the black people who lived in the historic neighborhood and my mom called me and said, I just need you to show up at this meeting. And if I put on a suit and just sit in the back of a room, mm-hmm. then it made people treat my mom and her neighbors better. better. And so that made me think, all these people spent money educating me, mm-hmm. pouring into me, mm-hmm. and now I have the resources and power to be visible mm-hmm. and drive change. Right. And I can't just go back to a city where I'm anonymous and pretend like, you know, it doesn't exist yeah right. so uh, at that point i felt like this place is home my, my family came here in search of freedom mm-hmm. and it's mine to claim
1: it's yours to claim it's mine to claim that's amazing yeah and so is this yeah. so you have a large um interest and it seems responsibility
0: mm-hmm. for a lot of a lot of privilege i mean as The responsibility looks big, but I think there's so many people who high-five me, Mm -hmm. you know, and support me, so I don't feel like it, it doesn't feel like a burden.
1: Okay, okay, so tell me a little bit about this big project you're working on. I mean, you already got a lot of big work projects, but there's another project that you're working on in Northeast.
0: Right, so, um, Between 1900 and 1950, there was a part of town that was the historic black part of town. Many of you probably have been inside the Moda Center where the Trailblazers play. That was a neighborhood called Albina. It was largely black and German. Um, In the 1950s, the city acquired uh, most of the homes and the land by eminent domain. They paid some homeowners as little as $25 for their property, we estimate that the wealth lost in our community, in the African-American community, was about half a billion dollars oh, as a result of the imminent domain. Anyway, they bulldozed it and built mm-hmm. a sports facility. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we put a bunch of freeways through there, mm-hmm. and then we poked each other in the eye with a yep. bunch of transit systems, and the river is a super fun site, so nobody wanted to go near no that. To that. And then we turned a bunch of open space into parking lots and 50 years later, that part of the city, which is now in the center of the city, 94 acres of basically wow. undeveloped land, wow. um, is essentially a giant FU to the black community, mm-hmm. right? And so in trying to embrace this responsibility that I have, I'm pushing the city to redevelop that community with a view of attracting African Americans mm-hmm. to the central city and to acknowledge our role in building Building. Portland as a thriving design-centered place. My grandfather came here, he lived in that community. He was an engineer who migrated here from uh, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And our thriving economy is a result of that labor force coming here and they lived in that community. So I don't like that they've tried to wipe us out, right? right? And so one of the changes I think in black leadership is that we don't need to walk away from our communities mm-hmm. in order to achieve financial or personal success. That's a very
1: important statement.
0: Right, and I'm not gonna do that. I know where I came from, I know who my people are, mm-hmm. I know how important we've been to this economy, and I think the, the the generations of women and black people who have fought for us to have a more equal education, access to wealth, they don't want me to just live in some big house, right? And right. like have a bunch of fancy shit, and then have my brother or my neighbor really hustling to To um, combat the forces of displacement. So I'm trying to just to use this influence for our shared wealth Mm -hmm. and not just my personal wealth.
1: That's wonderful. That really is wonderful. Rakai is the chief investment officer at Meyer Memorial Trust. She's been working with the company since 2014. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. Find out more about Rakaya and get access to all of our episodes on our website at claimastories.com. And while you're there, please give us a review. If you'd like to connect, follow us on Instagram at Claimastories. Our show this week is produced by BJ Fergozo and Adrian Anaya with music composed by VDOT of The Creative State. Thanks also to Oilong Maui and Kate Williams. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to Stories.